Good afternoon. Welcome to the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council presentation by journalist Sana Maher from Pakistan. Thanks to everyone who has joined us in person today, and thanks to all of you who are joining us via City Channel 4's live stream. I'm Dave Martin, president of ICFRC's Board of Directors. We thank our members and supporters who have renewed their annual membership in ICFRC, and we invite those of you who have not yet renewed your membership or joined ICFRC to do so on our website at icfrc.org. We depend on the financial support of our members and friends to enable us to continue to provide high-quality international educational programs at no cost to our community, so we appreciate your membership support. ICFRC is grateful to Midwest One Bank for its annual support for our programs, including the use of this conference room for in-person programs. We acknowledge and thank our organizational supporters, the University of Iowa's International Programs, the University of Iowa's Honors Program, the University of Iowa Public Policy Center, and the Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization for all their financial support. We thank City Channel 4 for their support in live streaming all our in-person programs this fall, and we thank City Channel 4 and UI Digital Libraries for making all of our programs available to online audiences. We are also grateful to the Iowa Arts Council for its financial support through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs. ICFRC has adopted the Native American Land Acknowledgement prepared for the City of Iowa City's Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the Iowa City Human Rights Commission. We recognize that our home community of Iowa City now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. The area of Iowa City was within the homelands of the Iowa, Meskwaki, and Sauk, and because history is complex and time goes back far beyond memory, we also acknowledge the ancient connections of many other indigenous peoples here. The history of broken treaties and forced removal that dispossessed indigenous peoples of their homelands was and is an act of colonization and genocide that we cannot erase. We implore the Iowa City community to commit to understanding and addressing these injustices as we all work towards equity, restoration, and reparations. As we get started, I would like to cover some in-person live streaming etiquette tips. Following our speaker's presentation at around 1240, we will have a 15 to 20 minute Q&A. And for those here in the audience, you will be able to raise your hand and ask your question and just wait for the microphone to be brought to you before asking your question. For those of you watching us via City Channel 4, you can text your questions to ICFRC to 319-600-2588. We are carrying out our program today in collaboration with the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa. And so now I would like to introduce Hugh Ferrer, who's the Associate Director of the International Writing Program. Hugh served for many years as a senior editor of the Iowa Review and on the boards of Iowa City's UNESCO City of Literature and the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights. For more than a decade, he has been a faculty member of the Iowa Summer Writing Festival. Hugh, we thank you for your assistance and support in delivering this program today. Thank you, David. Uh, speaking of etiquette, uh, would anybody, could, could you just raise your hand if you'd be uncomfortable if I raised my mask while I was reading? Okay, thank you. There we go. 
Uh, it's my pleasure today to introduce Sanam Maher, a journalist and author based in Karachi, whose reporting focuses primarily on art and culture, business, politics, religious minorities, and women. She has covered stories at all ends of the spectrum, from how fast food came to Pakistan and how an all-girls boxing team came to be formed in Karachi's most impoverished gang-controlled neighborhoods, to in-depth reporting on religious hate groups on TikTok. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Al Jazeera, The Caravan, Roads and Kingdoms, The Times Literary Supplement, and many other sources. After the murder in July 2016 of Pakistan's first social media celebrity, Kandil Balak, Ms. Maher began a long investigation into both Balak's life and her death, an investigation that kept broadening. In its review of A Woman Like Her, The Short Life of Kandil Balak, which was first published in 2018 and published in the U.S. by Melville House Press in 2020, the Washington Post characterized the book as not just the story of one rebellious woman, but a study of an entire country and culture in collision with the new demands of the Internet, reality TV, and women determined to take off, shake off old strictures. Some of the central questions that arose from Ms. Maher's investigation into that murder, such as what kind of woman is the country's culture willing to tolerate, and how did Kandil encourage a generation of Pakistani women to inhabit the same online spaces that she was viciously trolled in, those questions continue to expand, to unfold, revealing larger questions of how sex is being talked about, and as importantly, how it isn't. Censoring the topic or even discussions about the topic is ultimately to prevent an essential conversation about one's own culture and society. Ms. Maher's talk today is entitled, Is the Transgression Worth It? And she asks, if instead of censoring these conversations, we invited them, what is the worst that could happen? Ms. Maher is in Iowa City taking part in the International Writing Program's Fall Residency, and the IWP is grateful to the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs at the U.S. Department of State for sponsoring Ms. Maher's residency and giving us the chance to hear from her today. Please join me in welcoming Sanam Maher. Thank you. Can you hear me okay, or do I need to lower this? This is okay? I assume, yes. Um, thank you so much for being here today. I'd like to thank the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council for having me and the International Writing Program for bringing me to Iowa for this residency. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here and this is actually my first uh, post-COVID event um, with strangers. So thank you for being here. I think when you're told that you're going to hear a Pakistani Muslim woman talk about sex, you probably wonder what that's going to sound like. What will come up? And when you hear Pakistan and sex together, I wonder what comes to mind. I don't think we're known for our willingness or ability to have frank discussions about the subject, but I also think there isn't really much difference between us when it comes to this topic. At this time in this year, how are we thinking about sex? How are we talking about it? What are our preoccupations and the questions that we're asking? What do the conversations that we're having sound like? When we talk about sex, we are invariably talking about, amongst other things, power, society, our culture, tradition, transgression, class, and increasingly about consent, about the old rules and the need for new rules after the old ones have left many of us devastated, 
about rule breakers who have encouraged or forced us to have different kinds of conversations about sex. I've been thinking about this topic since 2016, when a 26-year-old woman named Kandil Baloch began to make headlines in Pakistan with the things she was posting on social media. And I wanted to show you a little bit of a clip, just to give you a sense of who she was, what she looked like, how she spoke. Um, this is a video that Kandil posted in February 2016 on Facebook. And it was in response to a presidential um, warning, it was called a warning, um, not to celebrate Valentine's Day. It was deemed a Western holiday and a day that had nothing to do with Islamic values or culture, according to the country's president. Um, so I'm just going to play a bit of the video for you. She does speak in a mix of English and Urdu, so don't worry about that. <clears throat> a happy Valentine's Day to everybody. I hope that you have Valentine. Enjoy and you will enjoy And I'm not happy today because the uh, government has created a lot This is not good. And uh, I don't know what's wrong with the government. Like, I will they can stop to uh, people go out, but they can't stop to people love. Like, I think the video gives you a really good sense of why Kandil started making waves in Pakistan. It's not just the content of the video, but if you look at the way she's dressed, the way she's talking about this presidential warning, how she doesn't really seem to give a damn about the rules of the place that she's living in, and the ways in which you can be punished for breaking those rules. Many of us had never seen a woman behave in this way on a public platform. To show her body off in a public space in this way, to speak freely and to ask for our attention. Just a few days after she posted this video, it had been seen 830,000 times. Kandil was a masterful curator of her image. She knew her audience well, and knew exactly what to give us to keep us watching, to keep us returning to her Facebook page for more. She didn't just go viral once. She created the blueprint for how you can forge a career for yourself from grabbing people's attention just the one time. How do you capitalize on going viral, and how do you keep giving the audience something new, something they haven't seen before, something funny or unbelievable, so that they don't turn their gaze away from you, or tire of you, or scroll past you to see the latest funny cat video, or whatever the flavor of the day is. Kandil's daily posts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube were a mixed bag. She had a headache, she was bored, she had a song stuck in her head, she would try on a new dress and wanted to know if she looked sexy, and they were seen by thousands. This Valentine's Day video shows us everything that Pakistanis loved and loved to hate about Kandil. She played the coquette, she dished out critique of some of Pakistan's most holy cows, and she gave her heart away to politicians, actors, singers, and cricketers. Later on in the video towards the end, she talks about how she wants Imran Khan, who is now the prime minister, to be her valentine. So it's a nice little invite, which obviously he never got back about. We snickered at the way she spoke and her accent, and we marveled at her gumption. She was the stuff of a 100 memes and the butt of our jokes. She was Pakistan's first celebrity by social media, and she had more than 700,000 followers on Facebook and 40,000 followers on Twitter. Her posts went up at night 
When Kandil said she couldn't sleep, she said that her family was sound asleep and the night was hers to play in. She would post her videos and photographs then, and they were usually forgotten by her viewers by the time morning came or when she posted the next thing. Until the videos became more risque, by Pakistan standards at least. Kandil understood that in this day and age, to be talked about was the most important thing. It didn't matter what people were saying about you as long as they continued to talk about you. To be famous in this way could be leveraged for greater opportunities, whether you wanted to be a singer or an actor or be paid to say or do something. And what would get people talking about you? What would outrage them but also be irresistible? Sex. In March 2016, Kandil uploaded a video that couldn't be swept aside so easily. I know this is going to be on TV, so I won't show it. Don't worry. She promised a striptease for her viewers if Pakistan's cricket team won an upcoming match against India, and she put out what she called a trailer for the promised video. Now, if you look up that video, um, you might think it's pretty tame and amateur, honestly, by the standards of what you can find online these days. But for many of her fans in Pakistan, Kandil had now gone too far. Here are some of the comments she received. Before you post these sort of videos, think about your religion and your family. This is too much. Others were not so polite. Please shoot her wherever you found, find her. A female Facebook user wrote, have some shame. I don't know what kind of family you come from. Are they so dishonorable? Another wrote, shame on you. Pakistan was made in the name of Islam. You're a girl. Shame on you and shame on your parents who made a dirty child like you. Another wrote, she is destroying the image of Pakistanis in front of the world. She is especially destroying the image of women. Kandil began to confuse and enrage these people. They could not understand what kind of woman would behave the way that she did and not retreat off of social media in the face of the kind of vitriol she now faced every day for posting her videos and photos. What kind of woman, specifically a Muslim Pakistani woman, would not feel shame? Kandil persisted and she continued to pique our interest. When I think about it, there has been no one since that has compelled us to hear her who began to show us what it could look like if a woman did not hold her tongue, did not feel ashamed of what she wanted to say or do, and she invited you to gaze at her, no holds barred. In April 2016, she was invited onto a talk show where she met a cleric, Mufti Kavi, a man who was a frequent guest on shows where he weighed in with his religious opinions on everything from dating to transgender men and women. The two got along, and in June, he visited Karachi, where Kandil lived, and they arranged to meet up. She posted a number of photographs and videos of that meeting on Facebook and Twitter, and she tweeted that the cleric had behaved inappropriately with her. He was enamored by her and wanted to marry her. She told one reporter he couldn't control his emotions. He made many attempts to hug and kiss me, tried to make out with me. Then he would stop when I asked him to stop, but then he'd try again. She called her parents and told them she had been terrified of his behavior. She then held a press conference and revealed that she had been deluged with threats after exposing this cleric. Her audience was less than sympathetic. One male reporter asked, who told you to go to the hotel room and make a video with him? The journalist implied that she was being dramatic in order to get some attention. Why should they, they wanted to know, 
believe a woman like her? Why was she in the hotel room with the cleric in the first place? And there'd never been any other complaints against him by other women. After weeks of a media frenzy, Kandil traveled to her parents' home. She sought some relief and a break from the endless phone calls from journalists. But on the night of July 15, 2016, her younger brother spiked her drink with a sedative and strangled her in her sleep. He described it as an honor killing, a murder to restore the respect and honor he believed that her behavior online had robbed him of. She was 26 years old at the time. When her brother was arrested and presented at a press conference, the journalist there asked him why he had murdered his sister, and he replied, you know what she was doing on Facebook, all those problems with the cleric, you know what she was doing. There were no follow-up questions and there was no argument. Because yes, we all knew. We'd all seen the videos and the photographs. We all knew she'd broken the rules of our society and culture. And now we were all asking ourselves the same question. Was the transgression worth it? In the days after her death, many Pakistanis expressed happiness that Kandil had been punished for behaving the way that she did. I saw acquaintances in my own social media feeds having arguments about whether what had happened was right or wrong, whether she deserved what had been done to her. On social media, many women who condemned the murder or confessed that they had been fans of Kandil faced a torrent of abuse, and some of them temporarily had to shut down their social media accounts after receiving threats. Offline, many of the men and women I knew condemned her death but then in the next breath would follow their statements with, but if you think about it, she was asking for it, they implied. What else could she have expected would happen? And why did we expect anything different? These reactions horrified me. What could a woman do that was so terrible, considered so beyond the pale, and in what way had she stepped so out of line that to kill her, to end her life, seemed to be the most normal or widely accepted punishment. I began to wonder what kind of place created a woman like Kandil, what kind of people would not turn away when she titillated them, only to turn around and say, we cannot tolerate you anymore. We have no space for a woman like you anymore. I remembered a local TV interview that she had done a few months before she was killed, where an actress who was on the same talk show said, no one should follow her. People like her should just be made to disappear. But what would happen, I wondered, if we simply refused to erase her? What's the worst that could happen if young women came forward and demanded that we hear their stories? What if the women who were coming forward could not be as easily dismissed as Gandil was or called some of the names that she was? In July this year, I would ask myself that question again. News broke on Twitter of the discovery of a young woman's body in Islamabad, the capital. 27-year-old Noor was found killed, she was beheaded actually, in the, form of her, in, in the home of her 30-year-old boyfriend. He had killed her, he said, because he wanted to marry her and she had refused. The trial actually started today, the 14th, so I'm not going to comment on his statements or the investigation. Noor may have not nor may have been yet another statistic in a horrifying ledger of violent crimes against women, but her case stands out for several reasons. She was the daughter of a former Pakistani diplomat, and her alleged killer is from an influential, wealthy family, and he is a US national, and he lived in one of the city's most exclusive neighborhoods. The nature of the killing was horrific, and Islamabad is a small city. 
smaller than Iowa. Many people knew either both the killer and the either both the killer and the victim, or they knew Noor. In the days after her death, Pakistanis used the hashtag Justice for Noor on social media, and those who mourned her did not want her family to bear the cost of pursuing justice alone. A GoFundMe page to raise money for their legal fees hit almost $50,000 in the first few days. Her friends describe her as kind, artistic, and funny, a girl who rescued stray cats and dogs because she would be brought to tears seeing them. For many Pakistani women, this was a watershed moment. The killing had been triggering, not just for those who knew Noor. I remember everywhere I went in the days after, whether it was a work meeting or a Pilates class, women wanted to talk about the case, but they also wanted to share how the details haunted them. We had been hearing stories about the alleged killer, how he used to send girls threatening or abusive messages when they turned down his advances, how he made strange off-color jokes, how he could fly into a rage. And all women wanted to talk about in the days after was how they knew someone, a friend's partner, their own partner, an acquaintance, who had displayed behavior that troubled them, that spoke in ways that made them uncomfortable, who sometimes got a bit handsy, or bruises tended to the night after a squabble got out of control. But they had brushed all of this under the rug. It was none of their business, they told themselves. They didn't want to get involved, but more often than not, they wondered who would believe them and whether anything would be done if they voiced their concerns. Who would care and what would people say? As coverage of Noor's case grew, the backlash started to creep in. What was she doing at this young man's house at night, some people asked. Why did her parents not know where she was? Did they know she was dating this boy? And what kind of girl went to her boyfriend's house at night without informing her parents? Some went further. Had she been raped or were the two intimate with each other? A video of her dancing with the man at his brother's wedding was shared widely. Dating, people weighed in, was out of bounds for a good Muslim girl. And if you crossed a line like that, you could only invite terrible repercussions for yourself. This time, Pakistani women wouldn't listen to the criticism silently. They were enraged. The killing could not have been more gruesome. And yet, even in the face of such terrible violence, people were asking if the woman deserved what had been done. They were implying that she had behaved in any way that explained or merited such a cruel and unusual punishment. Why is it that violence against a woman is understood, excused, or condoned because it is viewed through the prism of that woman's behavior? How she looks, how she talks, presents herself, what she shares of her life, who she dates, and where she goes. The writer Catherine Angel recently wrote, is it the case that a woman's presumed desire, even just once, for one man, makes her vulnerable? Her desire disqualifies her, Angel writes, from protection and from justice. Once a woman is thought to have said yes to something, she can say no to nothing. A friend of Noor's, a young Pakistani-Canadian woman named Zara, decided enough was enough. She had known both Noor and her alleged killer, and she had heard enough stories about the young man to know that he was dangerous, and he had harmed or tried to hurt other women in the past. She had personal experience too, as he had sent her Instagram messages calling her names, asking for naked pictures, and then threatening her when she refused. He had sent similar texts to others, except no one had spoken out. 
They didn't know where to turn, who to speak to, or they felt ashamed or scared to say something. He had been behaving in this way for years, enabled by a culture of silence where women feared being shamed as someone with loose morals, a bad woman, for even dating. Zara took to her Instagram page and put out a call. If any woman in Islamabad wanted to anonymously share a story about a partner, current or ex, who she believed was abusive, she could send in that story and Zara would share it. She would name these men as a warning, not just to the men that you're on notice, but to women who may know them. She was quickly overwhelmed. The accusations of abuse poured in, nearly 400 against 50 men from wealthy families in the city, the sons of policymakers, businessmen, and owners of some of the most elite schools in the country. The number of her followers shot up from 3,000 to 18,500. Some of the men were well known. A student in her 20s accused a pop musician of pursuing her while she was still a minor. In an interview with Vice, the student said he had manipulated her into non-consensual sexual activity when she was less than 18. In speaking out, she wasn't just warning other women, but also talking about concepts that may not be well known in Pakistan, such as grooming. When Zara shared her submission about the musician, she received five more. There was a pattern here, and he was targeting teenage girls on social media. The same happened with other stories. Zara would share an anonymous submission, and dozens of women would message to back up the story or confirm that they had witnessed some problematic behavior with the man. Slowly but surely, a whisper network was being formed. For many, this was the first time they had been given space to talk about what had been done to them, and there was great catharsis in that. For her pains, Zara was sent legal notices and threats of lawsuit against defamation, attempts to break into her social media accounts, and many reports filed against her to Instagram. Do I think that her approach was the safest or the most sound? No. Is it problematic, and is there concerning room for error? Yes. Do I believe the women who came forward and messaged her? Yes. Was even one man convicted or formally accused by the women messaging Zara? No. Was it worth it? The women who came to Zara shared their stories anonymously. They wanted to make sure that no woman meets Noor's fate. In remaining anonymous, they are not hopeful of justice being served, and moreover, they don't seek it. After all, they live in a country where only 0.3% of suspects in rape cases have been convicted since 2015. And those are only the figures from the reported cases, the ones where a woman will be brave enough to approach the police. These women live in a country where their prime minister, Imran Khan, acknowledged in April that the reported number of rape cases are just 1% of likely numbers. And then in June, in an interview on HBO said, if a woman is wearing very few clothes, it will have an impact on men unless they are robots. It's common sense. There is a problem, he seemed to be saying, but the women are just making it worse. In August, on Pakistan's Independence Day, a young woman named Aisha headed to a park to make videos for TikTok showing people celebrating the day. While she was taking selfies and making videos, a group of men swarmed to her. They wanted to take pictures with her too, but their numbers quickly grew. Police estimated 300 or 400 men quickly encircled her. 
They had their phones out. They streamed videos of her screaming as she was grabbed, groped, tossed in the air like a doll, and they clawed at her clothes. The videos were shared to all social media platforms. I could not fully watch them. Here was proof of assault, of a woman being harmed. How could we deny it? How could we question or blame women if they said they did not feel safe? But many called the assault a publicity stunt. This girl just wanted more followers on TikTok, they said. She wanted to go viral. Why had she gone to the park? Had she been dressed up? Had she called attention to herself? And what did we expect the men to do in this circumstance where mob mentality prevailed, where they were tempted by the sight of this young woman enjoying herself in the park? The videos that the men had made enabled authorities to identify them. They had taken selfies and they had streamed the assault on their personal social media accounts. Of the 104 arrests, 98 have been released due to a lack of evidence. The stories are endless. Women have begun to speak and to share their experiences, and they have much to say. In the absence of a free, fully functioning media, safe women-only physical spaces, or within a society that curtails their physical movement and freedoms, women have created their own public space in which to have these conversations, a virtual space that women like Kandil had introduced them to with all of its freedoms and dangers. As I consider their stories and the responses to them, I've asked myself many times, what kind of women are we willing to believe? What kind of woman do we unequivocally think does not deserve violence? Does a woman have to be good or virtuous or a child in order to be believed when she says she was harmed or abused? And who determines what good is? In September 2020, a Pakistani French woman was traveling on a motorway with her two children when she ran out of gas. She was stranded by the side of the motorway waiting for help from her family and the authorities when two men approached her. They forced her children to watch what they did to her. The highest ranking police official in the city appeared before the media and he asked, why did she take the motorway at that time and not a more busy road? Why was she on the motorway at that time with her two children? Was there some quarrel at home? Was she fleeing something or someone? And why did she not check how much fuel she had before setting out? He referred to the fact that she was Pakistani French. She seemed to be op operating under the impression that Pakistan is as safe as France, he said. A married woman, mother of two kids, locked in her own car and waiting for assistance. What kind of woman would she have to be? How should the circumstances be different for that police official to never utter the words that he did or for him to be fired immediately for what he had said? What kind of twisted metrics are these and what does it do to you as a woman to be in a country that asks you to make such calculations? I started this talk by saying I hoped we would find common ground here and a question that Kandil would get asked many times in interviews about her social media activity was, what kind of woman would do something like this? Why don't you just stop? That demonstrates an anxiety. How does a good Pakistani Muslim woman look, behave, and think? What does she want? Does she have desires and wants? There's a fear of what could happen if a woman decided to answer that for herself, if we allowed her to answer that question. And there is anger and criticism when a woman answers that question. 
I don't want you to leave here thinking that this anger or judgment is a particularly Pakistani response. In 2019, when my book, A Woman Like Her, came out in the UK, I had to do a number of interviews in the lead up to its release, and one was with a well-known television host on a well-known television channel. And on the day of the interview, just moments before we went live, I was settling into my chair, and he turned to me and said he had looked up Kandil and who she was in order to prepare for the interview. He'd watched her videos and seen her pictures. I don't know, he said. I found it all a bit distasteful. I don't know what kind of response he was expecting, but I think he saw the look on my face, and he very quickly added, but of course murder is bad. Yes, murder is bad. I got done with the interview and his producer walked me out, and as we got into the elevator, she said very sympathetically, I can't imagine what it must be like to be a woman in that kind of place, to deal with that kind of attitude and judgment. And I really felt like saying, if you wanted to know what that was like, that attitude is there in that studio with a full face of makeup. So. Which brings me to my final question. Why do we speak up? Why do we as women share our stories? And in my case, I ask myself, why do I work on these stories? I know the toll that they take, and I know that after I worked on Kandil's story, it has taken me almost four years to begin to think of another. Is it worth it? There are many days when it is difficult to continue and it is painful to hold back from covering certain stories because you don't want to invite the kind of anger and vitriol in response to them. There are many days when it is easy to get caught up in the outrage because you see it every day with the click of a button all from the phone in your hand. But I also remind myself that the anger, the criticism, the judgment is a manifestation of fear. Fear in response to something that is being said and a new way that is being forged. The whisper network has power, the tweets insisting in the face of all doubt that yes, you were harmed many times and yes, you should be believed, those tweets have power. The videos and the photographs shared online despite rape and death threats or threats of legal action have power. With Noor's murder, with Kandil's murder, with the assault in the park, with the woman on the motorway, we have seen the worst possibly what can be done to us. And I think we're asking, if we've seen the worst, what do we have to fear? What has our silence protected us from thus far? And was the silence worth it? Thank you. Uh, so many questions uh, <laughs> jumped to mind, but I, uh, I guess I wanted to start a little bit with and uh, I'm hoping people will also um, uh, text in any questions they have. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how your background with journalism, um, how journalistic ethics impacts covering a story in which, and a series of stories, in which social media, which is an area that journalism is involved in, both on the business side as well as on the coverage side, you know, how, uh, how uh, some of the complexities uh, of what what that area is in which it's not clear always what's getting monetized, in which clicks are a kind of uh, commodity, uh, when the self is being sold in a certain way, uh, that that itself is a kind of business model, uh, and how journalism, at least journalism as you come to it, uh, 
deals with that and doesn't get caught up in the feeding frenzy or isn't subject to the same sort of um, critique as the subject itself. Mm. I think it is difficult to not get caught up in the feeding frenzy. That's such a great term for it. And when you have um, increasing, I mean, I think that really is a situation now where all of us are curating our lives, putting them on display, showing versions of ourself. Um, how do you begin to write about someone or talk about someone as a public figure using the kind of material that you find on social media? I can only talk about myself and how you avoid that feeding frenzy, but it's extremely difficult to do so. I did feel immense pressure as I started investigating Kandil's life, and I had all of this material on her, all of the stuff she had not shared online. Um, and it's very tempting to write just a straight-up biography and to reveal all of that. But I had to remind myself that I was dealing with someone that at every turn, no matter how great her reach was, she didn't share that information. She had been married before. Her real name wasn't Kandil. She had a child. She didn't share any of those parts of her life. And she came from this small village, from nothing really, and went on to become the person that she did. She had never talked about that publicly. And for me, it really became a question of, do I have the right to do so? Do I have the right to share this information when she did not? And she's no longer here to talk back or to correct anything that I say. Am I allowed to set the record? So I really, my focus with the book shifted then. And it became very much the question I would always ask is, you know, it's not my job to, sorry, it's not a question, but it's not my job to tell you everything about this woman. It's my job to ask you why you want to know everything about her. And invariably, it would be a situation where the information I give you will make her more likable, will make her more of a human. Are you then going to sympathize with her? Does that enable you? If I tell you how hard she worked to get to this, do you then feel okay saying it's terrible what happened to her? Or am I giving you details that say, well, yeah, she kind of was asking for it. Am I just supplying that? Why do you want to know? So that sort of shifted my focus, and um, that's how it became a bigger story about my generation of Pakistanis right now. Thanks, you. First of all, I want to remind everybody, if you want to text us, you can text at 319-600-2588 to ask your question if you're watching on that video stream. So, Ms. Mars, thank you so much. That was, that was a wonderful presentation, and I, I think you're very brave to speak out. So my question really has to do with how safe do you feel as a journalist? Given the state of journalism in the world and all the journalists that have been attacked, and of course we just had the recent two journalists awarded the Nobel Prize, which is wonderful because of the state of journalism, how safe do you feel talking about this so openly? I feel like... Um when I started working on this book, I don't think I knew just what I was in for, and it was a massive learning experience. This was the first murder case I covered. It was the first story with this great a scope. Um, I hadn't worked on something like this before, and I feel like once you get to the end of that, and once you're so focused on putting out the story, 
And then once it's out there and then suddenly like this, the book just took on a life far greater than anything I imagined. I thought it would be Pakistani readers reading it, most likely women reading it, women who had liked Kandil. We're not really known for our love of nonfiction books in Pakistan. Um, and then it just kind of exploded. And I think after that, I have become more wary. And the people that I had to encounter while working on this, I mean, I think after that, it hit me. And that's why now, when I look at these other cases, I really have taken this time to pause and to say, is it worth it? Do I want to do it? When I know the toll that it takes, when I know what it's like, when I know that you put something like this out in a public space and the kind of reaction, good and bad, that you invite, why do you want to do this work? What is the meaning behind it? And it's not something I take lightly. Uh, I don't. I don't think you can discount your safety when you're working on these kinds of issues, the way that our work is no longer just private. Once it goes online, once it's available around the world, you are receiving comments and criticism from all over. It's very loud. Do you really want to open yourself up to that? And which story is worth doing that? Well, you cannot stop thinking about it. And that's hopefully the next book. That's It's something I've sat on for a year. And then I told myself, okay, if you can't stop thinking about it, then do it. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's weighing up which stories are worth it and how do you keep yourself safe while doing so. I don't want to hog the mic, but if others if others have a question, so now you you started uh, with uh, a governmental edict uh, about Valentine's Day. <laughs> and how that's viewed as a Western, uh, Western incursion, a yeah. bit of a cultural invasion. Yeah. And on some level, it feels as though Kandil is also being viewed that way or being positioned or being framed that way, at least from certain points of view within Pakistan. Mm. And, I'm, and the book has now exploded into you know, and is being read in a lot of Western countries and by far more audiences than you thought would originally be uh, uh, interested in it. And I guess without trying to simplify what is obviously a, uh, an ultimately very complex issue, do you want to talk a little bit about how this has deepened your understanding of the cultural clashes or the where the lines are between uh, the multicultural, anything that's going on multiculturally in Pakistan and how Western, Western values or Western attitudes or Western media uh, are meeting traditional or what, how would you characterize what they are meeting? I guess what is, what is the, was, you understand the question more than I do. I think do, I, I hope. do. Um, I wouldn't, I don't want to set up a binary between traditional and Western values. I don't think that that's helpful. Um, I do think that it's not just a Pakistani thing. If we look at so many countries, we're all connected with each other on a scale like never before. And it's so simple. There's so many avenues for you to look at how people are living their lives around the world, what they're saying, doing, eating, how they're dressing, how they're speaking, um, the politics in their country. Um, and I think if I look particularly at Pakistan, you have a generation of young men and women that have aspirations for their lives 
that may not be supported by the place that they're living in. They're looking at how, let's say, women are going to school, women are working, women are speaking, dressing, traveling. Um, and you may be a young woman in Pakistan that has those aspirations, but you're not in a family or a space that can support that. So for me, it's interesting to say, well, what if the freedoms that you want or the things you desire or the things you want to try out, the ways in which you want to live your life, what if there is a pushback against that? Because in the place that you're in, that pushback exists because it's change and there's anxiety about change. What happens when there is change? What happens to the ways in which we define ourselves? Um, if we look at things like tradition, um, rituals, like everything, right? All of those things ground us and they give us a sense of identity. So if you suddenly say, all of that has changed, all of that doesn't exist anymore, where does that leave you? How do you define yourself? And so I think there is this anxiety from a number of people that what happens if we allow this change? Do I get left behind? Do I no longer have the power that I do now? And I'm interested in that when there is pushback from both sides. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's a situation where it's a Western, where it's, it is really modernity against conservatism. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question fully. No, it, it totally did. And, you know, I, I, I know that Kandil isn't from one of the, you had to travel to interview her yeah. family, right? Yeah. She's, she is from another region. and She is, but again, if we, if we get rid of that simple binary, right? Like yeah. she is the only girl, she has three brothers, but her parents fully supported what she did mm -hmm. and she fully supported them financially. She was very close with them. Um, so this isn't a case where you're looking at, that's why her story was also different because you had her father turning around and saying, she is more precious to me than my boys. She was like a son to me. She took care of me like a son would. Um, so yeah, I think I think she upends a lot of that, and it's it's useful when we kind of ditch the binary. What el what other stories are there? So I have two questions online. So I'll ask them first. I'll ask the first one, let you answer, it, and then ask the second one. So the first question has to do with um, I guess the global status of women, right? And the issue that you raised in Pakistan as a, as an issue that faces women all across the world. And do you see this as leading to a Me Too movement in Pakistan? And what kind of support would you need from other women's groups? I don't think we're leading to a Me Too movement. I think we are firmly within our movement. I don't think it's something that, um, like when, when women were coming forward all over the world and particularly in the US and the movement was picking up steam, we immediately cottoned on and there was, um, women were suddenly sharing their stories. There were so many cases that suddenly came forward. I think the difficult thing is in Pakistan, um, we very quickly got caught in this net where basically if you out someone online, um, the laws can be used against you because you are defaming that person. So defamation laws suddenly came into play. And that has really silenced a lot of women. Where do they go to speak up? Where do they go to speak out? So I think one of the biggest things that needs to change is there need, there need to be spaces where men and women can come forward and share what has happened to them without being scared that immediately there is going to be um, lawsuits against you, defamation cases against you. You should have some way of being heard um, and sharing your story. So there's, there's a number of 
really big cases, very interesting cases going on in Pakistan right now. I won't get into that right now, but... So you yeah. have more to write about. Sorry? You have a lot more to write about. <laughs> yeah. A second question is, there's some students online and they are interested in becoming journalists and they want to know what advice would you have for a young person, a, a student that wants to become a journalist oh, these days? Um, I mean, I think it's it's really what I said earlier. I think this isn't this isn't an easy field to work in. If this is the kind of work you're interested in, it isn't an easy industry. Um, I think when you're a writer, it's one of the very few professions I know of where you spend a lot of your time actually questioning whether you are a writer or you, I don't see doctors saying, am I really a doctor? Um, am I really a teacher? So I think, I think it is, you have to have a really good sense of what it is you care about and what it is that you want to keep plowing forward towards and what you're working towards. What are the stories you want to tell? When I started working on this, I got some really great advice from a friend of mine who's a journalist and an author. And she said, work on the story that you can see yourself talking about for the next three to five years. Um, what do you care about? What do you want to write about? Um, and I know it's not, you know, advice, advice, but I think figure that out. And then no matter how hard it gets, um, because it is hard, just, yeah, keep going and put your work out there. Are there any more questions? Well, then maybe I'll hand it back to Dave. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. We'll conclude our program today. Thank you, Hugh, for moderating. And thank you, uh, Ms. Maher, for your presentation today. Uh, I'd like to present you with our uh, FRC highly coveted mug <laughs> that you. you can use for coffee, thank tea, you. or a beverage of your choice. Thank you. uh, thanks to all of you who have joined us today. Uh, next Wednesday, our next program will be at 12 noon. Uh, Professor Jerry Schnoor will do a presentation on the upcoming Glasgow Climate Change Conference. So we hope to see you there. Thank you. We are adjourned. <laughs>